All right. Well, I'm Angela Oliver. I'm the features editor at the Messenger Inquirer, also adjunct instructor at Kentucky Wesleyan, where I advise the Black Student Union. And um, as a person who's hair and scalp has been touched um, uninvitedly. I was pretty excited to talk about this book and just, um, you know, get us to all open up about our different experiences and how we can uh, coexist without awkward things like that happening. So this is just going to be a really informal discussion. I want everybody to chime in, you know, if you read the book, if you haven't read the book and just want to share from your own experiences. Um, we're just going to talk about uh, just a few key points that I picked up from this book, your thoughts on it, and then we can just, you know, all talk. So it's not, everybody relax, it's not anything formal. Um, and I wanted to start just by saying, because of course this is um, written by a black woman, and one of her points in her book was that she does a lot of things that black people don't do. So I wanted to start just, just with the disclaimer that, you know, no culture or the people within any culture are not a monolith you know they're not all the same but we can't deny that because of our you know shared traditions or um, the way certain things operate in our family and most obviously our physical characteristics a lot of people from the same culture do have the same experiences so we can't deny that even if we are all different we have that in common um, just because we share a culture so I wanted to start just by, um, since it's kind of a provocative title, just by hearing what you thought when you saw the title or heard the heard about the book. Okay. Me too. Because I go through the same thing every day. <laughs> Ooh, okay. You do that yourself? Can yeah. I touch <laughs> Anybody else? That's surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Touch your your baby bump. 
It was a personal space like that. I would put that on the same kind right. of level. Right. This is this is me. Yes. Ask permission, please. And so we can see that, you know, regardless of race, we have some of those shared experiences as well. Um, and I think that for me, the reason why, and I want us to talk about this in a way that we look at the root of some of the problems that she talks about. And this is, you know, this may not be the same for every black woman, but for me, and let me first tell you um, the few experiences with people touching my hair. One time it was at work. Um, you know, you don't go to work expecting to have to give lessons on things like that. But I was just at the water fountain filling up my bottle. And one of my coworkers, who's, you know, kind of a big personality anyway, reaches into my hair and feels around on my scalp. And, you know, it's asking me if my braids were tight, things like that. Just while I was at the water fountain. I didn't even see her coming because, you know, my back was <laughs> turned to the hallway. Um, so that, along with her asking if it was real on different occasions, um, there was a time at a meeting the other day when I announced this um, event and talked just a bit about it. And then after the event, went up and spoke to a lady personally, just, you know, introducing ourselves, and she still touched my hair. So... <laughs> And then you made me think about another experience when I was interviewing someone. Now, as I'm from Atlanta, so I'm used to being in, you know, more of a multicultural kind of place. Um, when I was interviewing someone a few years ago at a church, she came up to me and she was with, you know, her daughter who was maybe 12 and then her little baby who might have been two or three. And while I was writing down my question, she started stroking on my arm. And she said, oh, me and my friend were just talking about how beautiful your skin is and because you said you live in North Africa I told my mom about that and she told me that the same thing happened to her when she was studying abroad in Austria in 1976 so that is understandable one because it's a totally different country um, two because of the time period that she was there it's like you get it like you understand how people who are in Austria or North Africa could see you as someone totally different um, and maybe react to you in the way that they would do someone of their own culture. But, you know, at that point, and maybe it was about 2013, when someone was stroking my arm, it makes me think about um, Sarah Bartman. She's a real person, also known as the Hot and Top Venus, a black woman, uh, African woman, who in the 18, I guess mid-1800s, um, was bought and circulated around Europe by her owner because she had a big butt. And that's you know one of the natural features for a lot of black women or Latino women, bigger thighs, maybe bigger hips and a bigger butt. So because she had these features that Europeans were not used to, they made her a, literally a museum exhibit and the owner would just take her to these different places and show her off. Yes, exactly. And people could touch her and, you know, she was in the cage, things like that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. And just because they weren't, you know, used to seeing that, it was something that was, you know, exhibit worthy. So those are the kinds of things that I think about um, just as far as personal space um, and because of the supremacy in our country. And exactly. That's what makes it different. Yes, exactly. I people tension my hair all the time mm -hmm. because it's 
my entire life. But but it's different yes. because of our history yes. in America. Exactly. That the races haven't always been equal. Exactly. And so so I think that's what makes it different when you have especially white people teaching mm-hmm. all over you mm-hmm. and feeling like they have the right to do that. Exactly. Like that like ownership yes, of your like, body because it's a exactly. black body. I think it's sort of mm-hmm. talking about Everybody wants to lean over and have a baby. Yes. You've got the baby like in a special area. People will lean in and touch mm-hmm. baby for particularly I think the dynamics of my folks. Mm-hmm. They think they have the right. Yes. I am not a baby. Like you, you back off. <laughs> I have a voice that's exactly. that, that gets taken away. It's like you don't have the right to say this is my boundary. Mm-hmm. This is my body back off. Yes. And that's a, y'all are exactly right. That's the point of it is um, you know, sometimes it's probably just a curious, you know, but it's an invasion of privacy. It's a blatant invasion of privacy. And it also speaks to the fact that um, there's a lack of knowledge, but not only a lack of knowledge, a a lack of caring um, that some white people might have for getting to know other cultures. Because we've, you know, been rocking braids and froze and twist outs since we've been here. So after all of that time, why has it not been uh, a priority, just like we learn about, you know, I don't want to call it white history, but everything that we're taught in school, it's about the majority. So why hasn't there been any intentional effort to learn more about people who are, um, you know, just as much a part of the fabric of this country as you are? So that just, you know, kind of shows that there's just not a whole lot of interest, I guess, in learning more about black culture, which would include the way we wear our hair. Um, well, I think also, too, because I, when I was in that village, it was 79, mm-hmm. and I went to school at Madison Millward Hopkins over in Hopkins County, mm-hmm. and they had a black history class, mm-hmm. and I loved history, and I wanted to take that class so bad, mm-hmm. but the counselors said no. Wow. Did they give you a reason? No, they just said that they didn't think that they were class for me. So it was only black folks that took that mm-hmm. class. And I wanted to take that class because I loved history and mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun. So even though I might have had had the opportunity to learn more, I was kept out of doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. At that point, I would say maybe find another avenue. I know we didn't have, you know, the internet uh, super highway or information well, super highway new. back then. They, but. We didn't have such a thing. It was just in the 70s. That yes. You can even say that mm-hmm. there's a different mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably, it's still not. So you probably know. not in 79. Because there's been an, a recent example of that maybe two years ago where a textbook in Texas um, mm-hmm. oh, listed no. slaves as workers. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it was a Christian and if if you know we need further reference for that of course that's our secretary of education who um, recently she advocates for school choice you know which is fine if that's what you believe in but she recently compared school choice to HBCUs, which are historically black uh, universities, um, saying that they were pioneers of school choice when in fact they were created because we didn't have a choice of where we wanted to go to school. So that's a perfect example 
of uh, just kind of that lack of interest that leads to those inappropriate um, conversations or inappropriate touches and things like that. But um, I think Phoebe does a really, really good job using humor to kind of <laughs> to make these kind of difficult um, subjects a little bit more palatable. And I know Judy talked a little bit about it being different because of the culture pop references and, um, you know, just the language and you kind of have to maybe know a little bit about hip hop or Michael Fassbender to understand, <laughs> to understand, you know, some of her comparisons and stories, but how much of it was what? Age. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> That's understandable. <laughs> but um, obviously, you know, more than hair, that's just one factor in pretty much how we're perceived by um, society. And some people, like I said, may just be genuinely curious about it. And I've, you know, heard people say, oh, your hair is hip or it's cool or, you know, it's not hip or cool. To us, it's attached to so much more than just a trend. You know, we've seen how, um, I'm not, it was probably Vogue or, you know, one of those kind of magazines where Kendall Jenner, she's a model, one of the Kardashians, uh, was rocking these three little cornrows on the side of her head. And it was during fashion week. And, you know, all of a sudden, cornrows or, or mini braids, they call them mini braids. Mini braids are all the rage because Kendall Jenner has them in her head. Um, or Bantu knots or baby hair. These all, you know, kind of different styles that black women might rock from time to time are, like Phoebe talked about in the book, considered unprofessional or um, you're not, you need to straighten your hair when you go on your interview so that they'll, so they'll be relaxed. You know, if your hair is relaxed, they'll be relaxed. It's the, the kind of joke that goes along with that. And for instance, I have a sorority sister who is a broadcast news uh, reporter. And when she, she's in Kansas City now, but when she was in Carbondale, she has a huge fro and it's fabulous. But when she was in Carbondale, her superiors uh, highly suggested that she wear a wig for her on-air presentation. And she's a very meek person and, you know, we're starting out. In our career, sometimes you're going to do stuff that you don't want to do because you need a job. Um, so that's just a real-life example of how some employers look at hair, um, whether it's an afro or whether you have locks. You know, they associate that with some kind of stereotype, that you're going to be militant, that you're going to be a weed smoker, or that you're um, unclean or something like that. So for us, it's not about a trend. It's something... Um, that's really ingrained in our culture, even to the point where we've denied our own natural hair. Uh, because even back in enslavement, if you were lighter skinned and had straighter or longer hair, you were better looking, you know, for instance. So those are things that have plagued us even within the black community that we still can't quite get rid of. Um, so they, the conversation about our hair runs very deeply beyond a trend and it's hurtful um, and very angering when it's recognized as something that's trendy when it's on a white model or it's at fashion week um, and it's something that's considered, you know, ghetto or unprofessional or unkempt when it's on a black woman 
or a group of black women who have been wearing their hair like that for centuries. You know, it's not new. It's not fashion forward. It's the way we wear our hair. <laughs> and I just wanted to also kind of bring up some of those stories about like the hot comb. I'm 29, but I still got my hair hot combed when I was a little girl. And basically, does everybody know what a hot comb is? <laughs> so just kind of thinking about a hot comb or like she wrote about spending four or five hours on a Saturday morning in the salon or six hours to get your hair braided or, you know, these processes take a long time, but... Mm -hmm. on my hair and I every one of them. <laughs> I had no idea the time and the expense mm -hmm. of it. And it was like, okay, that already puts you at a disadvantage. You, know, you don't have the money to buy nice clothes because you're spending them on your hair. <laughs> I mean, I, there, it, there are just so many mm -hmm. things that lead to that. Yes. When you start that kind of time and money. Mm -hmm. me think of a, a painting called links and lineage lineage and it shows a grandmother uh, braiding her daughter's hair and then the mother with the younger daughter you know you sit on the floor yeah. between your mom's legs yeah. and you're braiding hair so it's just a representation of you know how some things are passed down and pretty timeless and um, but also you know you mentioned the time and it is annoying it is you know frustrating when you have to spend so much time on your hair but it's also an art you know, braids, the different kind of styles. If you've ever been to like a Bronner Brothers hair show, they are um, marvels. Like they do all kinds of things with their hair. So it's just beyond um, a hairstyle. It's showing off a certain creativity or an homage to our ancestors through the braids and things like that. So it's just a lot more to it. I heard something one time that was talking about, maybe it was a video on camera, but it brought up a part of the history of hair that I had Mm -hmm. You know, when when slaves were brought over, and, you know, from so many different 
cultures and languages and religions mm-hmm. and all that, and they were stripped of all that. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the only things they had was hair. Exactly. <laughs> like, so that's one of the few things that have lasted. lasted yeah. Uh, because so much else is, you know, is gone. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have the opportunity to express it or to keep speaking their language mm-hmm. or to keep practicing their religion or whatever it was. So this is one of the few things that was able to be passed. Mm-hmm. So it's more than... Exactly. And then even beyond, you know, just kind of the art and the celebration of it, um, for a lot of people, especially now as wearing natural hair has become more acceptable, I think that some of the more relaxed styles or why we pay so much attention to our hair in the first place also comes from that period of um, kind of respectability politics. Have you all heard of that? Where you have to make sure that you present yourself in the proper way. Uh, Make sure that your hair is together and that you're well-groomed so that society takes you seriously because you already have a knock against you if you're a woman and a double knock if you're a black woman. So that idea of uh, respectability, making sure that everything you do is, um, you know, 100% right so that your blackness doesn't matter, just if that makes sense. That's the last thing that you want people to judge you by. So you make sure that everything else or um, everything else that's going to define you is perfect and that includes your hair to the point where, you know, we essentially burned our hair with relaxers. You know, that's permanent damage for a lot of people. Um, and like I said, that's changing. A lot of the relaxer sales are going down, um, and that can be credited to the popularity of weave as well, because we, you know, got a little magic. We can change our hair every day if we want to. (laughs) So that just, uh, kind of goes to show you how really deeply rooted it is. And it's just so much more than what's on your head. And that also goes to my second point of one of the biggest things that I got from the book is that representation matters. And that was really central um, because of the industry that she's in. She's a stand-up comedian. She's an author. She has a podcast. Um, And when she was talking about some of the casting calls and the auditions, um, they're usually only stereotypes. You know, the black best friend is sassy or bossy. Um, (laughs) So things like that, that... They really don't give you a lot of range in Hollywood or, you know, in the entertainment media. And that can have that can be a reflection or that can have some influence on what little black girls think that they can do. For instance, Disney, that's something that stands out for a lot of kids. Everybody loves Disney. Disney didn't have a black princess until Princess Tiana, which was uh, the princess in the frog, maybe 2009 or 2008, somewhere in there. And she was she was a frog she was a waitress and she was a frog for, you know, eighty percent of the movie. So just you know, little things like that where we don't have a black princess or maybe little black girls think that they can't be royalty or, you know, um, if they do see a woman with an afro in a sitcom or whatever, she has an attitude or, you know, she's bossy, things like that. So representation matters as far as um influence because of course even if everybody always talks about the media the media is a huge 
um, way that society is influenced and a huge, uh, it has a huge impact on the way we see people because of the images that we see, whether we like that or not. Well, and, and I think it has even more of an impact in terms of the black and white cultures mm -hmm. because we, as, as a white person, don't interact enough with people of color mm -hmm. so that what we depend on then mm -hmm. is the media, exactly. which just makes it worse. Yes. And there's um, an example of that <laughs> that I think about, and I'm, it, it's just really frustrating, is the Popeye's chicken lady. Um, kind of a modern day uh, mammy, the lady in the Popeye's commercial, she's really excited about chicken. Um, she's just, you know, kind of lively and loud, and she cooks chicken. Meanwhile, the Popeye's CEO is a white woman, you know. So there's just that kind of disconnect between reality and the stereotype. Um, and Phoebe mentioned in the book the makeover that Aunt Jemima had because she used to have on a headscarf on the syrup bottle, and now she just looks like a you know regular black lady. <laughs> so, there are plenty of examples in the media um, that can show us just the that disconnect between kind of the top that makes all the the casting decisions, the production decisions, and how there's just seemingly um, no kind of consideration for the truth when it comes to depicting people of other cultures. And another recent example was the Shea, Mo uh, Shea Moisture commercial. Are you all familiar with that? It was a hair hate. There was their tagline. And um, <laughs> it was supposed to kind of illustrate women breaking through their, I guess, self-image problems about their hair. And it started off with kind of a racially ambiguous light-skinned woman with curly kind of kinky hair. So you could kind of tell she was mixed with black. Still no fully black women in the commercial, but anyway. Um, and then there was a red-haired red woman, white woman, and I think maybe a curly-haired blonde white lady. So um, they all just shared these little stories about their hair hate and how they used to not accept their hair. And there was a lot of backlash for that commercial because having red hair, even if it's not popular or sexy, it, you cannot compare it to having kinky hair or an afro and saying that we're not gonna hire you because of it. there's just absolutely no comparison. So um, that's just an example of the disconnect with that. And I just saw that Annie, the little black girl that did Annie, yes. and they, it was just awful yes. how they talked about that baby. They, <laughs> yes, and she was what nine years old at the time, maybe. Yeah. They talked about her because that she wasn't representing the correct Annie because mm -hmm. she had uh, black kinky hair and Annie. She was beautiful. Yeah, not in everybody's eyes though. So. Okay. <laughs> Dominique Dawes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and I'm going after her. Oh, uh, 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 Gabrielle yeah, Douglas. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Or even the Black Bachelorette. There's a Black Bachelorette on that TV show now, and people are flipping their ish mm. because they don't want to see that black lady <laughs> on primetime TV. Um, so just a lot of different representations. Um, we can. I've kind of thought about if the strife that's sometimes attached to our hair would be any different if um, there weren't every, ever any of those comparisons to the European standards of beauty that kind of made us start straightening our hair and things like that. Um, so it just goes back 
so far that it takes a lot of time to unpack and a lot of time to really get over because it's just that deep. So, um, is it my, yeah. Well, it's more for me, it's probably more of um, in college where my mom stopped paying for me to get my hair. <laughs> and I had to <laughs> I had to do it on my own. And so I started perming my own hair and it fell all out because I permed it one time after I got it colored and oh, it was just it was a mess. But um, I'm very intentional now about the way I wear my hair because I live here. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say it as if I'm trying to be a character or anything, but because I'm in a place, um, and this is since college, I went to Western I was in the journalism program, so I'm used to being the first only different, the only you know black person in the room most of the time, the only black person on the leadership council or whatever. Um, so when I'm here, because of the experiences like people touching my hair or because of some of the um, microaggressions, and we'll get to that in just a second, because of some of those experiences, I'm like, okay, I'm in this white, this majority white space. Um, it's clear to me by some people's suggestions and comments, um, even people who are well-traveled, multi-degreed, you know, should know better, still have said and done some things that just completely baffled me. So I take that to kind of push myself to be an example. And I make sure, you know, I'm very proud of my blackness. So I'm intentional about the way I wear my hair or if I'm wearing my Africa earrings or my long nails and my lot of rings or whatever, that you're gonna know I'm black. You know, when I'm in this room, I'm gonna have a seat at this table and I'm gonna approach almost everything from my cultural perspective because that's missing here. So that's a part of it. <laughs> that's a part of it. And um, onto those micro microaggressions, because also with the uh, representation comes this idea of the angry black woman. Yes. The angry black woman that Phoebe talked about in here. And that's also kind of a part of um, my third point, which was this two-ness or this double consciousness that um, James Baldwin talks a lot about. And that's the idea that you have to be, you know, you have to exist in the black world and then you have to exist in the white world that's usually your job or maybe your kid's school in this region or your college campus, things like that. So sometimes you feel as a black person, specifically a woman or, you know, a lot for men because black men don't want to come off as threatening or the thug or, you know, they're going to snatch your purse, things like that. So we have to kind of temper ourselves or code switch. Is everybody familiar with code switching? Mm -hmm where, you know, with my homegirls or my family and I could talk like this, but when I'm at work, you know, it's messenger and choir, this is Angela. And you kind of have to switch codes um, to fit in to certain worlds. So sometimes it feels in a white world, like you're denying or maybe hiding 
don't want to say hide, but you're kind of turning down mm -hmm. a little part of you, one, because it's not always going to be understood. And you don't, you know, always feel like having to explain yourself. So you just do it in the way that's going to play the game that everybody's going to understand for now until you can get to a place where you're writing the rules of the game rather than having to follow the majority rules. So it kind of is a difficult place to be in, one, because you're always thinking about it. And she talks about that a little bit too. Um, James Baldwin also said that to be a Negro, and you know, this is at the time that he was a writer, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. <laughs> and I find that to be very true, um, simply because like I said, the contrast between where I grew up, which was the West End of Atlanta, surrounded by all the black colleges, you know, black mayor for the last 40, 50 years, um, where we, we still have access to things, we're still authorities and things. So we see that we can become these high level, you know, executives and politicians to my college experience and my professional experience in white spaces where I have to fight to be heard or to be taken seriously. Um, so I just see that huge contrast and it keeps me in a rage because I feel like when I go to certain places, uh, back to the angry black women, woman example, for instance, I was at the Ag Expo. I cover agriculture at the paper, so that's a whole new world. <laughs> I was at the Ag, <laughs> I was at the Ag Expo and um, sat down at a table that some people I knew there invited me to sit at. Now, the, the guy who made this remark was not a part of that group that I knew, but he was an older man, probably in the 70s or 80s, and I had a style similar to this. And before I sat down, he asked me if I stuck my finger in the electrical socket before I got there. So here I am in this room with maybe 600, 700 white people at you know, a luncheon, being the server, we're the only two specks in the room, you know, the only two specks of color in the room. So am I gonna go off on this older guy? Of course not, because then I would be the only black woman with this big red hair, because it was, you know, similar to this, but longer and bigger and redder. So that would just be too much attention. But that's an example of me feeling like I played myself because I didn't correct this guy. And he's gonna say something like that to somebody else. So in some instances, you know, there's kind of the space or the setting for offering a polite correction or stern correction if it needs to be stern. But sometimes we just can't do that. And she talked about that with the, um, that play in her college course where her classmate wrote a questionable play that was based on slavery and um, just the ways that she had to, what did she say, measure twice and cut once before she decided to speak up for herself because she didn't want to come off as that angry person. This is where white people have to, like, we have to do better than, yeah. like, somebody else at that table should have been like, no. Yeah, exactly. But, so that's where we can help, I guess. Yes. And that should be. Right. And that's an important point about get, being an ally. Because we're not going to get the stereotype of, you know, angry white woman. Mm -hmm. You might think that about me, particularly, but not everybody. And it's not a, you know, but, but what you would get is that you would be disrespectful to this elderly man. He's been through some of the biggest major cultural changes in America. He should know better about it. Mm -hmm. Like, 
or he's never been like, to work. So he's never been to work. That's the And there's also been an instance where, and this was a lawyer, um, now this lawyer, I'm not going to say his name, but anytime I've mentioned his name, I've not ever gotten a reaction from a person that was like, oh, that guy, you know, so. (laughs) When we met in person, after only having, you know, ever talked on the phone for interviews, the first thing that he said to me when I was shaking his hand was, oh. I had no idea you were black. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So that uh, would be exactly, exactly. That would be considered a microaggression, um, as well as an instance where a woman was. Now I was there in my capacity as a journalist, and this woman was introducing me as articulate, and I thought, you know. I'm a college-educated, technically a professional articulator because I write, I report, you know? Why wouldn't I be articulate? So she introduced me in that way. Um, I had just finished interviewing her and she was introducing me to somebody else. And that's always kind of a, not a point of anger, but it always kind of bothers me when people do that. And it happens pretty often, first of all, because they don't necessarily use that word when they're talking about other women, or namely white women. Um, and secondly, because why do you feel the need to point something out that's implied by my training? Um, <laughs> and by what I'm used for. Yes, exactly. That's the point. And I, those are a couple of examples of microaggressions. And I'm just gonna read this definition of microaggressions. Have you all heard that term before? So it's defined by Columbia uh, professor Daryl Wing, Daryl Wing Sue, excuse me, as brief, commonplace, daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults toward people of color. And, um, Basically, what that means is even if someone's meaning to do it or not, they're saying something that's kind of putting you in your place. Um, They're distinguishing the fact that you are other. um, And like you said, being surprised by, you know, maybe one of your accomplishments or just how you present yourself. And that happens every day. Um, Even I can think of a time at the Neville Center where we were having a candidate forum. I'm the VP of the board there. And we invited, this was back in October, when we invited all of the uh, mayoral and the city commissioner, all the candidates, just to answer questions from the community. And the man who is now our mayor uh, spent the entirety of his question answer time, because I was keeping the time, and holding up particular signs to let people know when they had to stop talking. 
and I would ring the bell if they went over their time. And we went over all the rules ahead of time, but he kept going over his time, so I kept ringing the bell. But he, um, you know, kept saying things like, well, I would get my statement out, but that girl over there is going to keep ringing that bell, or she's a rough girl, you know. That girl? Yeah. <laughs> so certainly ways that he would never talk to a man. Um, so it's sometimes it's um, an unintentional just kind of curiosity, like we talked about earlier. But sometimes it's just really glaring, just flagrant, you know, racism <laughs> like that. So And also sexism. Yes. I mean, that happens to a lot of you. Mm -hmm. Nobody calls me Berlin. But, you know, a lot of young women are still called yes. uh, girls. And, and when they're starting out in their careers. And a lot of people don't understand why girl, mm -hmm. girls and men, you mm -hmm. know, they'll say the girls over there and then the men, they don't get, like, why are you getting so upset for being called a girl? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, well, if I was ten, <laughs> yeah. Like I said, that shit's Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many times my point up is pulled. 
just bringing up your concerns about safety. You know, there are serious implications in some cases for not speaking up because you don't want to be the angry black woman. That well, I, could, get, I get the trouble for speaking up, mm-hmm. but, but I do it and I, I don't look angry. Mm-hmm. It's going to come off as angry regardless. Well, it's almost so, like, you know, like a dumb road. Exactly. You look through a different door, I exactly. mean, you look like, oh, she's, she's mad. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then with the kid, my, kid, my whole house is odd. So kids do it too. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Absolutely. And just to kind of continue with your points about uh, the angry mm-hmm. black woman, if we are angry, you know, black women <laughs> and Latino <laughs> women get that kind of feisty uh, label. It's because we have a reason to be. You know, mm-hmm. we get paid. You know, the average statistic that you that's usually put out there for. Um, pay inequality is 78% that women get what 74 78% of what men get but for black women it's more like 59% and for Latino women it's probably 54 I think percent um so there's that idea that because of the stereotypes and because of that absolute erasure like you know some of these statistics that people rely on never include black women or women of color in general so there's just an erasure of us all together. We don't exist. Our concerns aren't valid. Um, so we have a reason to be angry. We got a lot of reasons to be angry. Um, but most of that is because of the stereotypes. And another example is hidden figures. Have you all seen hidden figures? Outstanding movie. Outstanding movie. But before that movie and before the book, because I don't even think a lot of people knew about the book, whoever knew that they had a room full of black women computing for NASA. Whoever knew that? Raise your hand if you did. Exactly. So, you know, we can all, we're all familiar with, um, you know, the preamble and the Ginsburg address and all these kind of majority um, accounts of history. But when it comes to things like that, things that show black women, going back to representation mattering, things that show black women or women of color having such a huge part in the biggest moments of our country's history, they're not there. You know, it takes a movie for anybody to know that black women were helping getting uh, men to the moon. You know, nobody ever knew that. So if there is a reason, or if we are angry, we have a reason to be, because it's hard to walk around just pretty much knowing that society thinks you don't exist. So, um, do you find yourself getting surprised? Like, were you surprised at his fears? Like, oh, how, does yes. that, how does it feel to like be surprised by your own culture? Like, that's just it's bizarre to me. 
it's just kind of a reinforcement of just the lack that there is in the whitewashing of history in general in you know the public school system at least um but going back to how i grew up we had you know african dance classes after school or we were taking ballet at spelman um our student teachers were black and they had on their greek jackets and you know we were surrounded by this culture that assured us of who we who we are but the textbooks didn't reflect the same thing. So no, thank God for our parents. Didn't exactly. That's the other thing. I mean, you grew up in a very special, mm -hmm. almost microcosm. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and so then when you moved out of it to go to college, mm -hmm. it was like, what? Right. <laughs> How come? I was very surprised uh, when I got to college. And this was in one of my black studies classes. That was my minor. But. Um, the students didn't know the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem. Uh, does anybody know the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing? Or heard it, heard the song? I have to mumble those songs. Lift Every Voice and Sing. And that kind of goes back to my point about, you know, we all know the Star Spangled Banner, mm -hmm. even though that's tied in racism as well. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody knows lift, you know, when you get to a certain point, I guess. Nobody knows lift every voice and sing. But we all know the words to my own Exactly. Which had, um, just, it had darkies in it until, what, 86 or 87, somewhere in there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so just the lack of care um, for just any kind of black history to be incorporated into the mainstream. And that's really sad because without us, America wouldn't be what it is as we know it. You know, we've made a lot of contributions that just are not recognized or highlighted or even um, acknowledged that they exist sometimes. So that's one of those contributions to the anger as well. I'm reminded of like not even just like hidden figures, like those mm -hmm. women, that was their job, mm -hmm. you know, they were educated. But um, I read about like the beginning of gynecology mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that practices those practices it was a bunch of white doctors mm -hmm. who had black females yes who were slaves yeah like did not have the mm -hmm. option and they had all these surgeries like over and over the same surgery repeated without mm -hmm. anesthesia you yes. know like all this stuff over and over again they were the guinea pigs exactly and then i mean even like you hear people talk about how the civil war is about um the economy well Black people were the economy. Mm -hmm. That was exactly. what, what you were exactly. buying and selling, and that was your labor. So, like, so much of what we benefit mm -hmm. from today was built unwillingly on yes. You're absolutely right. Yes. And without any kind of recognition or pay mm -hmm. or, you know, any mm -hmm. anything like that. And we just, you know, have the white people mm -hmm. that can talk about everything they built. You know, and as far as education goes, it's not any better. Mm-hmm. Here. Right. I mean, you said you had a black history class. I'm right over here. And it wasn't, and it still isn't. Mm -hmm. And there's so much division in the school now. It's, I live in the county, so my kids to city, mm -hmm. the city for culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's a big deal. <laughs> and it's really frustrating because, I mean, I had one kid tell my child that uh, you're not going to talk to the transparency. And I said
-hmm. As if he can't get a scholarship, you know. But, but and, and to that too, there's a division within the school because mm -hmm. if you came from this school, you're going to get this. Mm -hmm. If you came from that school, you're going to get this. If you come from this school, you're going to get very little. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's just wrong. Right. So it's just, it's okay. Mm -hmm. it was going, it's going nowhere. Culturally speaking, I left Owensboro in 94, mm -hmm. went to Louisville mm -hmm. because I thought there has to be something better than this. <laughs> But I I have an open mind of yeah. experiences and I met different cultures like mm -hmm. it's, it's it's one of the largest refugee yeah. centers in Kentucky. And it was a great experience. Seven years I came back home. So I've been home seven years now. And I remember coming back home and I had no friends and I thought, where are my people? Like a culturally inquisitive, wanna just be diverse people. And it's taken me like up until three years ago mm -hmm. to find mm -hmm. my tribe. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, thank God they do exist. <laughs> um, and in my high school, I went to Kapikai, and there were six African-American students right. there. Yeah. And that was it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> what? Went to Bellarmine Catholic College, small. There were probably 10 mm -hmm. African-American students. I had the privilege to be a roommate with one of them. She was amazing. Mm -hmm. She said, oh, you are so green. <laughs> I said, what's that? <laughs> and I said, I, I have so many questions about you as a person and mm -hmm. about your culture, I, but I don't want to offend you, but I have questions. Mm -hmm. She said, I'll give you one year. That's it. <laughs> and I mean, we would stay up all night long, and you know, it was great. And you know, because of her fearlessness mm -hmm. to embrace my curiosity, she grew from me, mm -hmm. I grew from her. And then, you know, I thought, well, surely Owensboro has changed. <laughs> and then when I hear your experience of coming to Western, I thought, oh dear, <laughs> you know. Um, but there are pockets of people, mm -hmm. you know, that help me to realize it's 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 better. But we have so much work we have to do, mm -hmm. um, spiritually, culturally. Um, the job I have now, like I have no idea the lack of boundaries, just physical space boundaries people have. Mm -hmm. You know, people, strangers grabbing me and pulling me. It's like, this joke, you know, like, hold up, wait a minute, did you even ask to touch me? Or not touch me? This is my space bubble. So, and, you know, hair, when I got my nose pierced, you know, one of the parents was like, oh, can I? I'm like, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, I've had people ask, are you that religion? I'm like, what religion? Because of your nose pierced? I was like, yeah. And I'm like, I don't go to church. They're like, but I lived in Atlanta for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And when I came back here, it was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's changed. It's nothing time. from when I graduated from OHS. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's, it was sad. Yeah. But see, you all are in a bigger town here. I was born in Greenville and raised in Madisonville. And I knew there were black folks, but they're invisible. Mm -hmm. Like when I was little, my best girlfriend was a girl named uh, Nikki. She was a black girl. And I guess we're just very 
badly behaved, but she and I always got in trouble together and everything. But, and that was before they put all the schools together. So where we were, when it was a mostly majority black school, mm -hmm. but we were bused in from the, the, the county. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed when I was here, I remember sometimes you would see black folks, but not much. And even in Sacramento, there was a black lady that came to mm -hmm. clean my, my stepmother's home. That's only my first night I ever saw in that town. I don't, I don't know where she lived or where everybody else was. And now when I'm in Central City and Greenville, I never see black people. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do they live their lives? I know now there's a black church. Mm -hmm. Now I know where there's another one in Central City. I don't go to church either. So I'm not going to go to church. <laughs> but, but, but it's like, black folks have whole lives. And they're all lived invisibly. Mm -hmm. Not so much invisible as unwelcome, especially in Central City. I grew up in uh, up in the Northeast, and um, it was I mean it was long enough to where the races pretty much did segregate themselves by neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that was a kind of a place where <clears throat> if somebody saw you like the police and they looked at your complexion, they knew where you were from, mm -hmm. and just everybody else, you know, because they would know you were either one place or the other. There were small, specific places, especially for minorities, where we were at. Like, I grew up in Cambridge, the town in the Northeast that everybody knows, Harvard, MIT. Well, I kind of grew on the eastern part where all those kids went to get their drugs. Mm -hmm. So that's how people, when you grow up there, that's how people look at you and they look at your complexion and they hear your last name. They're like, oh, we know where you're from in Cambridge. You know, that kind of thing. So. Black folks weren't exactly invisible, but they were like on our borders. Mm -hmm. So we knew they were there. Physically, And they knew where we were, and they made special care to not cross our border, and we wouldn't cross theirs. Mm -hmm. But we would meet in the middle when we went to school. But even then, we tended to segregate ourselves in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that still happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, but in the, the Latino. Because you can, you can legislate <laughs> mixing people, mm -hmm. all kinds of people. But if you put them all in the same room, they're still going to separate themselves. But the, 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 but the Latino community has a specific opportunity to either totally segregate themselves from mm -hmm. other people of color and listen to what the white folks are saying or listen to what the white folks are saying about all of us mm -hmm. and be like, hey, we need to stay you're together. not our friend either. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. So especially growing growing up, it was really, it was 50-50. Because -50. Mm -hmm. where I grew up, the majority of folks considered themselves white because they were Sicilian and they'd lived mm -hmm. there for a hundred years. Right. And the folks that were like me, that were Latinos, the few that lived there, they hadn't lived that long mm -hmm. there. They had had to scrap and prove themselves to finally actually get their little niche there. It wasn't easy, mm -hmm. but it was 50-50 because some of them were like, yeah, it was black folks that live over there and we live here and that's how we like it. But the other half, like my family, my direct family anyway, they were like, oh, 
we're pretty much all the same with these white folks. When we call the cops, they take just as long to get here as they do over there. It's no different. Don't let these Sicilians pull you the Right. Cops don't want to come in this neighborhood. And we were pretty much, we did, there was a lot of community policing because of mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Gotta look out for yourself. Yep. Cops and weren't called. They just, they would deal, dealt with it themselves. Mm -hmm. And all of that, you know, your different experiences brings up that phenomenon called lunchroom segregation or cafeteria segregation that, you know, a lot of sociologists and people study um, that does say, like you said, even if collectively everyone's, you know, integrated, we still tend to kind of float toward who we're comfortable with if we deem that we're comfortable with them because we look alike, you know, so we're going to feel a little bit more at home in those different groups. But back to Owensboro, um, or saying that people, black people or people of color, different cultures are invisible. I don't think it's so much invisible, like I said, as unwelcome. Because I think there's plenty of diversity here in Owensboro. We have, you know, this huge new multi-million dollar hospital. And naturally, and this, you know, isn't necessarily a stereotype, but that comes with a lot of doctors who are from India and Sri Lanka and, um, you know, just different areas of the world that are now thriving here. We have a significant refugee community from, uh, mostly from Burma, but also now more Somalians, uh, Vietnamese people, a few Cuban refugees. We have a huge black community here, uh, Latino community here. And once again, not a stereotype, but because this is a heavy agriculture area, we have a lot of migrant workers. So there's plenty of culture here it's just not necessarily embraced or welcome, or when people move here and they're greeted by this lovely uh, statue for our Confederate heroes that's on our courthouse lawn, of course they're gonna wanna be invisible because they, you know, that's just a sign to me that says, you don't belong here. Um, Kentucky wasn't even a Confederate state. But yeah, we have a statue for our Every time I drive yeah, by that statue, I'm really yeah. confused. So, yeah. <laughs> Especially me from being up north. Yeah. That's highly confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really confusing if you grow up in the town that was brought to be the Confederate capital for mm -hmm. two days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, where I grew up, you'd get your windows busted out if you had that on your car as a sticker. A flag. Really? Oh, yeah. Even if you went into South Boston, which was Irish, mm -hmm. they don't want to see that. They still don't. They just don't wear that around. Kind of goes to show the mentality. It's nice to me, though, I'm, like you say, we do have a population that's that's more diverse mm -hmm. than it was yes. 10, 20 years ago. Yes. But there's something that keeps us from including one another. Mm -hmm. You know, we might even be welcoming if we happen to sit next to each other and we would talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But I lived in a community across the river that was very encapsulated. Mm -hmm. And I lived there for two years, and I could never get beyond, hi, nice to meet you, and I'd talk. Uh, <laughs> but there was no thread to connect people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem, that we don't know how to do that, mm -hmm. so that everyone feels a part of what's going on. Uh, 
I was talking to one of my black friends one day, and she said something, and I didn't get the reference. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, you don't know what that is? And I can't even remember what it was now. But um, I was like, no, I have no idea what that is. And she was like, oh, sorry, girl, it's black culture. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, I was really curious. I was like, so school me. Tell me. Teach. And uh, she was like, well, she gave me this article to read. She was like, this is going to explain it better than I can. But basically what it boiled down to was black people know white culture because they live it every day. Yes. That is like the culture is white culture. Like white people like to say that we don't have culture. We don't even know what that is. American but, culture is white culture. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So black people know white culture. They know our favorite movies and our favorite songs because it's shut down their throat every day. Mm -hmm. But white people don't know black culture because we don't insert ourselves into it. Whereas you guys are forced into white culture. Mm -hmm. We're just kind of living in our own little world. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what's normal for everyone, but it's not. Mm -hmm. We just fool ourselves that. into thinking that. And so she was like, "That's you need to learn some about black culture mm -hmm. so that you'll understand. So maybe that could be a little bit of what's missing with that like, thread. That's it's just, right. we live in different cultures. And they know ours, but we don't know theirs. Mm -hmm. but, but on that note, since whiteness is centralized in this country's culture, mm -hmm. At the same time, whites feel like they do have the right to commodify every other culture around them yeah. and just totally dismiss the person. Like Cinco de Mayo, that's mm -hmm. a time when I want to hide because I'm not even Mexican. Right. <laughs> I don't want to see people with big, goofy mustaches, right. straw hats. I don't want that. I, just, I don't even want to see it. And that's, and that's an example, it's just, and you know, and if I say something, of course, I'll be the angry person mm -hmm. about, you you're, know. You're being too sensitive. It's like, yes. But it's like the white culture took a tradition and commercialized it for their own. Yes, they commodify it. It's we a commodity. That. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem. And people get very, very. And not cultural appropriation at all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they heard you. The when, what? I, when I mentioned it, I don't think they heard you. Cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation. Yes, exactly. And it Some seems like a lot of. It seems like a lot of the things that are recognized that come from other cultures and are commodified, like you said, by the majority. Um, you know, those cultures don't have any value unless they have something that you can sell. Right. Um, you don't even have to know the history behind it. Just, uh, it looks cute. It looks good. So yeah. sell it. And you do it until it doesn't profit you anymore. Exactly. Like Miley Cyrus. Mm -hmm. yes. Perfect She's example. She's going to be country again now mm -hmm. because twerking doesn't work for her anymore. Exactly. And my biggest girl. example of that is I, everybody loves Elvis and I do not like Elvis because Elvis uh, stole music that was written by black people and didn't give them credit for it and people love Elvis and you know he's just such a huge icon and he's exactly and people exactly people see him everywhere right <laughs> so I just think he's a, a really central example of that cultural appropriation um, I think when I first moved here, the first, there was like one, it's almost been 20 years, it was like one Mexican restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the guy that owned it, you know, we were talking in Spanish, and I was like, so let me try some of these tacos you got, you know. And um, he brought me some stuff out, and mm -hmm. they were corn. They mm -hmm. were made, the shells were made out of corn, and they weren't hard, like, you see a Taco Bell. Right. Which is just, 
that, by the way, is an invention of here. <laughs> so he brings that, and I was like, do you sell these to your customers? Mm -hmm. He said, oh, no. It and this is totally in Spanish. She says, these white folks, they don't want this stuff. We just give them flour tortillas. <laughs> because what they do is they Americanize. They don't, well, he said that they, don't, that they didn't want to eat that because it was too foreign for them. So I said, man, I'll take them. <laughs> but, you know, that's true of Chinese restaurants. Mm -hmm. you know, if you go to China, you're not going to get anything even close to what you get. Well, right. like, I mean, like, corn is like a staple in Latin America because that's my ancestral thing there. Because the indigenous folks there were eating corn for millennia. So it's a staple, literally, of a lot of Latin American cultures because mm -hmm. my parents are Colombian. And there's a lot of cooking with corn corn flour, corn starch, that kind of thing. So when I went to a Mexican restaurant, I was kind of expecting that. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, we can't do that here. Because it's, you know, I'm, I got a business. I'm trying to sell some food. You know, <laughs> they can't handle it. So I was like, I can handle it. change it for the American mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like, give it here. Our first introduction of Mexican food was probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand that, yeah. It, 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 but some people think that that's Mexican food. Yeah. Well, well, no. it's, yeah. at, at best, it's Tex-Mex, yeah. and you know, no. and, and that's, that's me being generous. It's tasty, but it's not Mexican. But the thing is, though, that's that stuff. The information is out there, yeah. and it's just whether people are comfortable seeking that mm -hmm. or not. And I notice a lot of people are not, and at that time they weren't because they were. They just got defensive about it. Because when I mentioned, you know, Taco Bell's not a Mexican restaurant, people get extremely offended. What do you mean? I've been eating that my whole life. This was, this was when I first moved here, and I was like, you know what, never mind. There's some, some discussions that are not trying to have. No, I was thinking about, uh, many of you know Winnie Lin, and Winnie and her husband were both born in China. And they came to Owensboro, it must be now 35 years ago, they've since moved away. But because part of it, she, uh, her children were having a lot of difficulty with bullying and just all kinds of discriminating things in school. And so she herself started the Multicultural Festival. It's been going on for probably 15 or 18 years mm -hmm. now. And it certainly has had its effect, mm -hmm. but I guess what I'm wondering is if, if somehow we could take what the Multicultural Festival has done in this community for, for celebrating different parts of cultures and expanding on that, not having a festival, mm -hmm. but doing something that helps people to interact with each other and learn from one another. I mean, and I don't know what it would be. Mm -hmm. but that's that's where I'm, I'm kind well, of. And most of that is on the individual. Like we have to just be intentional about putting ourselves out there. And, mm -hmm. You know, like interacting. You know, we live out in Deer Valley, and um, we built a house. And we were like the end of the street. So you know, people are moving in, buying, building new houses. And, you know, Come back, come back, be my friend. Like, <laughs> because I'm like, there's only one 
people around here. And there's a Burmese family across mm-hmm. the street. Um, but, I mean, I have a black daughter, so it's really, like, that's important for mm-hmm. us is to have people around her. And all it takes is, like, Amy, our neighbor, you know, she and her husband are black, and they have a little girl. They were outside one day, and we were like, hey, come play. You know, like, it's... Making sure that you... Yeah, and then it was Easter, and I wanted to straighten my daughter's hair, so she came and helped me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was just stuff like that, but we have to, I have to, like, get out of my comfort zone. But that's like, a totally opposite for me right there, because mm-hmm. I built and moved into a white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, the only one, you know, mm-hmm. I was the only one for a while. <laughs> and I got a lot of stares if I w- go walking around the block. It's like, what's this black girl doing? What's she, what's she get ready to rob? You know? <laughs> That's what I got every day. But now it's like three of us out there. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, when I walked out of my house, I went walking or whatever, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I got. Mm-hmm. I got stairs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to remind my neighbor, because we, we're the same way. We had a black lady moved in two years ago, but we were, we've been like 23, four years. Mm-hmm. I remember when I looked at the house one day with the realtor, my next door neighbor to this day, he was at my mailbox, and he just stared. Mm-hmm. So I remind him of it. What is but they don't remember and he laughs about it. But uh, I was like, why I maybe worth that house even more? But that was totally opposite because the next door neighbor right next to me, they are sweet. Mm-hmm. They're really nice. Yes. But everybody else good mm-hmm. people, but they just they hadn't lived they hadn't been around black people. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I think a lot of it is individual. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be a person to person. And I think that's like true in order to change mind like mm-hmm. as well yes. as, to, as to change what we know, you know, in the wake of things. Mm-hmm. And I hear you know, people ask us, well, I'm going to live my parents because we can. Exactly. (laughs) And I think it's really good that, you know, you mentioned your neighbor laughs about it now. Mm -hmm. It's good that you can get to a point where you can laugh about things that used to be awkward or concerning. Um, And I get that stare down there. It makes me think about, um, because you all were asking, you know, how we can take something like the Multicultural Fest and make it like a daily application. And it made me think about President Obama. I believe it was his, was it his last State of the Union or it was one of his last speeches where he was talking about all the changes and I wish I could be as diplomatic as President Obama because he mentioned (laughs) keeping in mind that uh, he used the analogy of the middle-aged or a certain age white man who's um, not familiar with all this new technology and has never known life to be um, anything but the way it was when he grew up. And he was saying that to say, even though we as people of color or anyone that's a minority um, or in a group that's largely oppressed, we feel like all the responsibility should be on the oppressor. But he was saying it in a way that we have to try to look at the other side too. Now, I'm still not sure that I agree with that, (laughs) but I just can appreciate the way that he tried to approach it by saying, Um, they're not necessarily always ill-intentioned, that maybe they're just used to life being a certain way and they can't handle, you know, the fact that gay people can get married now or uh, they might have biracial grandchildren. You know, they can't handle that because it's a culture shock from what they're used to for so long. Um, 
So I think going back to being intentional, like for instance, with your daughter, um, doing things like buy her black dolls mm -hmm. or making sure that even if you do, if you don't have any um, black children, still buy them, you know, black cartoons or, you know, well, make sure. Exactly. So that they have a range. A variety. Exactly. Because those American Girl dolls come in all cultures. Mm -hmm. They don't have to just have the white one. Mm -hmm. You know, so small, tiny things like that that might seem insignificant. Um, making sure that their library has books by black authors or about black children. Um, just really small things that people can do to kind of change that so they're not, they don't see minorities as invisible, but doing things to embrace them a little bit more. Um, I can think about Black History Month. And when I first started writing up here, I emailed all the colleges and the schools to see what they were doing for Black History Month so I could find something to write about. And nobody was doing anything. <laughs> nobody was doing anything, but one of the PR people from one of the colleges made sure to tell me that she really enjoyed this lecture by some black author about civil rights that was at some discussion she went to 10 years ago. So she had to make sure that I knew she was conscious. She's good. Right? She's good. So kind of, it's annoying to have to experience that um, when instead of acknowledging the fact that they should know better and they should offer some kind of black history programming because they have black students, you know, so make well, sure and, that. And the other piece is that it doesn't have to be black history. Exactly. It doesn't have to be right. right. Exactly. In fact, it's better if it's not in February. Exactly. Incorporated into everyday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the um, you mentioned the black history classes at schools. And I know there's one at OHS, but it, it rotates, you know, every few semesters or something. So that's yeah. another issue that is not something that's offered as a part of the mainstream curriculum. It's an elective. It's only offered, you know, every two or three years. So and ideally it would make sense if, if black history were taught as part of American history. Exactly. Right. If we wouldn't need black history class. Women's history should be taught as part of American history. Yes. Right. Exactly. We yes. Know, yes. Our, our husband history. tells a story that when he was he graduated in seventy six from Catholic. And he got suspended because he questioned why are we not talking about black history mm -hmm. when the nuns said get out. Wow. So suspended? Yeah. That's not that is <laughs> not surprising to him. Don't surprise me either. <laughs> and then you know at church, mm -hmm. I'm a convert, mm -hmm. it's credit Catholic. Right. They ask us about twice a month, why don't you send your kids to Catholic schools? Mm -hmm. And then he just makes up. <laughs> Like there's no there's no diversity mm -hmm. this day. Mm -hmm. Not enough. And I'm curious about uh, maybe some of your childhoods where your parents, you know, did you have toys of different colors or books my, written by different uh, authors? My mom was a was a middle school teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, she worked at the school library. Mm -hmm. So it was her job to order books. Mm -hmm. And the school that she worked at was a school that I attended for a while. It was a lot of of kids of color, not, there mm -hmm. was not a whole lot of white kids, so she ordered a whole bunch of history books that covered, you know, pretty much a whole lot of things. And then I remember my <coughs> freshman year, I was doing a paper on the First World War, mm -hmm. so she said, I can get you more books that'll help you with that. So she got me like four or five books on the Harlem Hellfighters, mm -hmm. and that was the first time I'd ever heard of them. Like, this is World War One history. She said, "Yes, <laughs> World War One history, right there. They were there. 
read these books. So I did, and I, I, I think I was probably the only person in the class that brought that, that group up. Mm -hmm. Out of everybody that turned in papers on World War I. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then these people were just like amazed, and my teacher even was like, but your teacher probably didn't know. No, of course not. That's not what he was really interested in. Yes. Yes. We do it with white dolls. Mm -hmm. Because black dolls, they were ugly, mm -hmm. and they had hair that you couldn't do anything. Right. Like no little kids wanted to comb hair. Right. Like a drill. Yeah. Like a drill. Yeah. Like a drill. 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 I grew up in Salina, Kansas, mm -hmm. and I'm 58 now. I'm in, left in the fourth grade. I don't, I can't remember exactly what the show was called, but there was Julia, and she was black. Mm -hmm. and Julia, and Julia, oh, and yeah. the a Julia doll, mm -hmm. and I traded her for a Barbie. She was like dying to have it. <laughs> and my mom didn't give me a hard time, but one of our women neighbors mm -hmm. did. Really, oh, I remember yeah. that. Wow. I was really happy to have it. I really liked the show. Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, the kind of situations that can stick with a child, and then that perpetuates the problem as they get older. So it's very important also to, you know, like that woman who was rubbing my arm in front of her daughter. Her daughter's going to think it's okay to go around rubbing people's arms if they look different. And, you know. It's hard to break out of what you're Exactly. exactly. I remember when I was younger, um, I had all of my sisters all handing out Barbies. Mm -hmm. So I had, like, 50... Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, 
Okay, first you said they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So how would you know how they felt? Mm-hmm. And I mean, as a child, I just got, every time I would start to dig into that, I would get shut down. And yeah. so, you know, now being an adult and trying to figure all this out on my own, and, you know, it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back and have conversations with my parents and just better watch out if anybody says black. Betrayed as the angry black woman because mm-hmm. I knew friend. that's what they were yeah. going to do to me. Yeah. Because it didn't come from this, it, the person told this other person that came and told me that I get special treatment because I'm black. Oh, I said, Huh? I thought she was playing. I just kind of went. Mm-hmm. She said, No, I'm for real. Mm-hmm. But they expected me to act a certain kind of way. Right. And I let it go. <laughs> I, I just don't talk to any of And that special treatment looks like yeah. special treatment if a white person is used to always right. equality uh, feels like oppression equality feels like oppression when you're used to privilege exactly it's a zero sum game mm-hmm. it's like if someone else gets a little power that means I have to give up a lot mm-hmm. well they say like, have you heard that it's that same thing just because somebody else gets power it's not pie Everybody gets it's the same. Right. Yeah. So you're, gonna, you're not going to get less pie because it's rights. It's everybody's rights. And that's why, <laughs> that's why the author, you know, has all these problems that we're pretty much familiar with because they just simply have not changed as far as the power aspect. Um, who are the producers, you know, in her industry? Who are the writers? She talks about. Um, shows that have characters of color or characters from different cultures that were still written by white people. So they still come off as a trope and a stereotype and just wildly inaccurate. Exactly. Exactly. So um, just like you said, because for so long, the majority has made the rules, it feels like inequality to them and that's why we just we keep having the same problems it's never i'm convinced that it's never going to end not at least in my lifetime <laughs> because and if we're talking just about the context of the u.s um because like you said everything that we benefit from now was built on the backs of people who would rather not have been there building it you know so i'm convinced that it's not going to change um because we still celebrate people like thomas jefferson who had the nerve to write about, you know, the Declaration of Independence when he owned slaves. You know, we still, he's considered a hero. Abraham Lincoln is considered a hero. He's an appeaser. You know, he wasn't this great peacemaker that everybody thought that he was. But because we still highlight these people, um, or these uh, well, pioneer know, but, women but who were racist as well. As full people, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Not because what we do is we highlight the stereotype, mm-hmm. whether it be as the, the great emancipator mm-hmm. or the appeaser, and he was much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And what we need is to learn about the complicated whole person. Yes, and she's talking about this as well. Now, to me, someone who has the gall to write a Declaration of Independence and owns people, there's just no gray area. There's no complication. Like yeah. he's a they certain kind of person. Justice for all, right? What's the all? <laughs> well, and, and <laughs> what does the all? And they certainly let go of the so I think we, we can't think of it as, uh, we can't think of it that way as saying we have to look at the whole person because that single act disqualifies him to me. You know, that's just in my eyes. Some things just aren't, you know, there's no redeeming qualities in someone who would do that. And that's a foundational document for our country. But the authors of it were exactly the opposite of everything they were writing about. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you remember that like Michelle Obama gave during the first campaign? Mm-hmm. She gave the speech and she said, and the minute she said, it's like, oh, oh, about the slaves building the White House? No, or? about the first time she felt proud of her yeah. to be an American. Mm-hmm. And people just went all over And it was her. just like, it's like, you guys just so don't get it. <laughs> but she said, and I knew the minute it came out of her mouth, what was going to happen? Mm-hmm. 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 Well, we got, how are we doing on time? It's about 8 o'clock. Okay, so we can go ahead and kind of wrap up about, here. I, I would say we have about 10 more minutes. Okay. Then, then I would like this group to talk a little about what, what they'd like to see happen. Okay, sure. Just to kind of wrap up with the book, you know, we've covered all, all these things that she's talked about, and we've seen how they happen in real life for a lot of us. Um, and that's, you know, on both sides, whether we're on the side trying to understand someone else that's different or whether we're on the side that's different and always has to explain so that other people can understand um, we can just see that it's a very real experience for all of us Um, and I just think that it helps us to be more aware even with that double consciousness with a teacher for instance you know black students get suspended at disproportionate rates because a lot of times, if we're in a region like this, their teacher doesn't know how to respond. Um, and this is not to say that all black children are impoverished and from single parent homes, but if there's a likelihood that the child is from a setting that contributes to their anger or contributes to the reason why they can't concentrate in class or contributes to why they might be falling asleep because their parent has to work three jobs and they're 13, so they have to take care of their six and seven year old brother and sister. If um, a teacher is just more conscious of the fact that they come from that other world, then they can respond to that child a little bit better. So just all those small things we can do, like buying black dolls for our children and um, taking it upon ourselves, like we, we realize that it has to be on the individual more so, um, then those are the ways that we're we're able to kind of make some progress. So does anybody have any other thoughts about the book or about what Judy said of how we can make some concrete changes in our everyday lives? But one thing we have to 
Unless you're a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that I hope that that's a positive contribution because if my three kids go to the world, go to school and they know, A, not to ask somebody a question that puts them on the spot, mm -hmm. if they know to respect people's physical boundaries, and then hopefully if, they, if he continues the way he is, I think it would be courageous enough to say to somebody who's something out. Hey, that's not cool. Back off. Mm -hmm. Because if more, if more people were a little bit conscious of mm -hmm. this, it would, I think that would start to turn the tide. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, and I think sometimes the, our, like, our biggest, especially it's mothers, our biggest contribution to the world might not necessarily be what we're doing, but mm -hmm. who we raise yes. and yeah. what they do. So, like, you know, our, our oldest, uh, we adopted her, she's black, and we have two sons, mm -hmm. biologically. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking about things or people are talking to me, they assume that I'm, you know, into this stuff mm -hmm. because of our daughter. And I'm like, this is just as important for my sons to know. You know, like, I mean, so much so that our last son, we named him Desmond Justice, which means Defender of Justice, mm -hmm. because, like, in my mind, I want him to, like, learn about these things that his sister's going to have to do with mm -hmm. it and observe them and, and take that and do something big with it. Like, I'm... So I think sometimes parenting plays a huge role yes. in this, yeah. um, you know, with our kids' friends and, and just our, our family and, and our personal friends. But I think things like this, like continuing stuff mm -hmm. like this, because, I mean, it's small and there's a handful of us mm -hmm. here, but if there's a different handful at right. the time, um, you know, that's somebody who maybe didn't even know that microaggressions were a thing mm -hmm. and they didn't know they weren't supposed to go around touching <laughs> um, you know, like little things that, you know, they just don't know the difference. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, I think sometimes it's a willful ignorance, but I think with, in our context, a lot of times it's just ignorance. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not that far removed. 
Not at all. There's still people here with that living memory. So, there's ignorance, but I don't want to be so ignorant. And it's like there's ignorance. I'm proud of it. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely like there's varying levels of like, do they care to learn more or not? I don't think that's so much pride as comfort. Yeah, that's an important part of being an ally uh, first of all being brave enough to call things out when you see them especially using your privilege if you have it but then also listening you know when you're in a situation where uh, for instance a black lives matter march or something if you want to participate in that and you're white you're welcome to you know because we need allies from every side but don't try to lead it. You know what I mean? So that's... Don't take it over. Exactly. And that's one of the ways that we can um, kind of make some progress is just making sure that the majority is listening to the minority. Um, there's no need to have to um, validate their experiences with your own. Just trust that it's a fact that they have those experiences. Exactly. Exactly. Themselves. You shouldn't feel that way. And if, and, if, and if you're a white person and you have a black friend or a Latino friend, significant other, child, whatever, then it's your imperative to speak up. Not to be quiet, mm -hmm. just because you don't want to offend all the other white folks. No. You're, nor, you're literally making that seem okay. Mm -hmm. That's the message you're giving your friend, your significant other, your child. Well, and you're saying to them, in addition, that they're not worth you taking the chance. Mm -hmm. And I say child because I knew a white person who I had an argument with who was saying the most idiotic stuff and microaggressive racist stuff. And his excuse was that he had adopted a child that was black. And I so said, that, So that gave him permission to do that? In his view, yes. And I said, you know, of children. you should be screaming on the mountaintops more than anybody else because you have this child that you claim you love who is black. See, you have to call people out on their beings. 
and I'm really glad that you all brought up parenting because that's one of the biggest things that we can do. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass said that it's easier to repair or to uh, build strong children than it is to repair broken men. So men like that 80-year-old guy who was at the Ag Expo, like you said, it's too late for him. It's too late for him. But, you know, all these young conscious people who speak up for their classmates and um, are curious about other cultures, that's really where we can put our focus to make sure that we don't keep these things going. You know, there's one other thing that throws me out. Um, my kids, uh, you know, they have white, probably more white friends. Mm -hmm. And their friends are always saying, can so-and-so come to my house for a while? Mm -hmm. And I say, no, but you can come to ours. Mm -hmm. And the parents always know. It's always like, uh, well, well, maybe. And I, I don't get offended. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I find it kind of humorous because I'm thinking, oh, you can come to your house, but you can't come to our mm -hmm. house. And then if they find out where we live, okay. Mm -hmm. Then I'm saying, that, no, it's not okay. Right. Right. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? I think some of the things we do, and I think it's good, but it has to be sincere. Mm -hmm. One thing I get frustrated with um, with some white folks is it's an experiment. Mm -hmm. And and I, I don't like that. Uh one of the things I'm also trying to do, I've, I left Madisonville when I was 17 and I've lived literally all over the world. Uh, I was always excited when I lived in France and I saw black people because I thought they were all American. Mm -hmm. They were all African, mm -hmm. I found out later. And I'd go, <laughs> but I was just so excited mm -hmm. when I saw a black person, I'd come up and start talking to them because I thought it was somebody from home. Right. And uh, it wasn't. But uh, one of the things I'm trying to do I've come back here a couple of years ago. I'm living in Greenville, mm -hmm. and with the last election, I've I've realized we have to come together. And so, one of the things that I'd like to invite you all next Monday um, at a, a church in uh, South Carrollton, uh, I call it Meet a Muslim, but it's really a, a interfaith dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I have an imam coming, oh, and I cool. tried to get with uh, the AME church that's there in Greenville. We never could get the pastor, and I understand mm -hmm. some. Uh, it's controversial to begin with. Mm -hmm. We had to go through a bunch of churches before, and believe it or not, we got a Baptist church to let us have so you in. I couldn't believe it. That that would have knocked me over with a feather. And we finally got the priest to come from the local church, and we have a Methodist minister um, who initially was going to host it, but he got pushback from his congregation, and so we found this other. So so I want to do that. Um, I also want to reach out to local, like NAACP, Black Lives Matter, that kind of thing. But I also found out, find, and I think it's rightly so, that there's fear, like, are you just going to use me because you want me to vote Democratic? Mm -hmm. Are you just going to use me because you want to feel good because you're white? Mm -hmm. You could say, oh, I have a black friend, mm -hmm. and that really gets under my skin. Yes. That's, uh, that's, that's the old, some of my best friends are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when that comes, some of my best friends are gay, black, Hispanic, mm -hmm. African, Muslim, whatever, it's like, okay. But I think, you know, it is incumbent, I think somebody said, it is incumbent upon us mm -hmm. to reach out. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get it the first time, then you just gotta keep asking so people know you are sincere. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the most important thing. Uh, my, when I go out with my son and my daughter-in-law, 
my youngest granddaughter said, Mama, why does everybody stare at us? And my son said, because we're just an interesting group of people. Mm -hmm. Because my son's father was Algerian, mm -hmm. my daughter-in-law is Jamaican, and then I have two biracial grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And I guess we aren't quite a side, <laughs> interesting group of people, but everywhere we go, people stare at, stare at us. Mm -hmm. and, and I've lived all over the world, so I guess I have forgotten what it was like to come back here. Mm -hmm. And it's really very, it makes me very, very sad sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's not just it's cool to have different kind of people that bring different perspectives, but it's sad right. because we are so segregated. And I had forgotten about all of that. Mm -hmm. So I think we just have to keep asking. And I, you know, like I said, I've asked to try to find who's our local NAACP people. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. Ronald and Randolph. Are not in Greenville, but here it's Ronald yeah. and Randolph. Well, you know what? I'm going to give my card out. Anybody wants to give me information, you've got his okay. contact. I'll start from there. Okay. Whatever it takes. Uh, because we're not going to get through what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. Our country's not going to survive. Mm -hmm. If you know what's funny yeah. nowadays is it's a mixture of minorities and everybody's family. Okay. Yeah. Come to the family reunion. Well, that's going to be the answer. Actually, you know, more people have families who are interested mm -hmm. in that way. The more open we'll all be. And then I have one, <laughs> one other thought. One other thought, simply because you brought up the state of our country right now, which is shambles, pretty much. Um, it's good to know that there are groups out there like resist and indivisible Owensboro and all these marches you know for women's rights it's good to know that people are waking up to the injustices and things like that however it's a perfect example just another perfect depiction of the fact that um, black people's concerns or minority concerns are erased and kind of swept under the rug because we've been saying this since 1619, you know, when we got here. So it's kind of disheartening to see people get in this rage about, you know, our president and uh, his cabinet and just everything that's tumbling down because he was elected. Um, because we've we've been going through that. We've like, been where, having where our rights you? snatched away. Exactly. 10, 20, and we, that brings up the idea of that thread or having to have something in common with someone before you can sympathize with them, you know. Like, I didn't think about these things mm -hmm. until I had a black daughter. Because you, you didn't have and to, now right? now it's personal. <laughs> yeah. Like, now it matters yeah. more to me. And, yeah. and that's a shame that mm -hmm. it didn't before, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's the change that had to happen in mm -hmm. my life for me to, like, take these things seriously mm -hmm. enough to, okay, so there's, Yes. Um, so I think the more that people are able to interact on different levels, and like you talked about, you know, interracial couples and whatever that looks like with family mm -hmm. and friends, and like that helps. Um, you know, it clearly kind of forces people into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, that doesn't fix the problem because right. there, there are still. Crisis members of Monday, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not going to get fixed. Yeah. Right. It's, it's going to be a, a lot of time. Yeah. It's, it's going to take so much patience and suffering will for 
Well, I mean, full of slackness. Election night, 2008, mm -hmm. I saw in the newspaper there was something at the Netflix Center. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any word of being mm -hmm. involved. I some brownies and went there. And I mean, I was so excited. I campaigned and done, you know, I was, and every time, you know, the hour would pass, let's leave, and I said, oh, I'm so excited, I can't wait. Mm -hmm. And this very elderly black man got the most somber look mm -hmm. on his face and said, we've been waiting so mm -hmm. long. And I'm, God, I'm not tempted. I mean, I was so, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, there are all these, you and know, so experiences you know, that have existed. <laughs> Does anyone have any other thoughts to share? Um, I know you were saying like what are things that we can do to keep this going. And I think um, I know this is just a part of everybody in the room, but I have two small kids that mm -hmm. I'm trying my darndest to not raise how I was raised. Mm -hmm. And so I mean Baptist. Yes, we went in my 
my son loved it, and he just, he was like, they're so excited, Bonnie. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Jesus is great. They know it. And uh, he's, you know, clapping, but like for the first 20 minutes, he was just like, we <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates' book about, or is a kind of a letter to his son about the black experience in America. Then we continued with um, 13th documentary. We did that in February. And then White Rage, or Waking Up White. Was it White Rage? White Rage. Yes, it's always been a lot. January, because there so many. Yeah, I went to that one. So, yeah. Which one was that evening? I mean, we're we're open to changing things because, of course, we want to reach as many people as possible. But I think something you could do. Um, now, this is geared towards a specific group of people, mm -hmm. but um, there are a lot of white adopted parents to mm -hmm. black children in the world. Well, I mean, a lot. Is there is there any is there any specific way to reach those parents? I'm. Okay, so there's no formal group. I don't, you know, because there are all, it's just kind of, there is a group, we just sort of know we just want to know. There is a formal group, not formal, but it used to be called Parents with Adopted Chinese Children. Okay. Okay. And they made a real effort to get the Chinese culture continued 
you know, so that their, their daughters didn't lose that and part of themselves. Right. Right. Okay. But that kind of, little boy in the, if we could uh, connect with those parents. Yeah. Okay. And that's the thing, you should just invite those people to come. And I keep saying, I know we do. Oh, oh, I understand. I know we do. The people you're referring to. That was not a microphone. No, I know what you mean. kind of wrap up um, I just well first of all appreciate everybody for being here tonight and I hope that something that we've discussed here will stick with you and be something that you can take to a friend or a co-worker um, because our knowledge makes us responsible so it's up to us whenever we learn something to carry it to the next person um, I just encourage everybody to be intentional in your ways that you try to make us all a little bit more comfortable with each other just always be aware of maybe where the other person's coming from and we'll be on our way crawling 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 inching it's going to take a while but we can we can make some change so yeah thank you so much thank you, thank you.